And hello, movie lovers. And today I actually have a very special guest of mine. It's one of my good friends. It's actually Josh from Mark with the Movie Blog. And we're going to be talking about Scream 3. This is the third film, of course, in the Wes Craven franchise of Scream. So let's go on ahead. Let's get on with it. And hey, Josh, how are you doing? Hey, how you doing, man? Happy to be back. Hey, it's good to have you back. I'm actually happy to be able to talk about the third film in the franchise. Of course, I did the second one with Taco, but I like, but here's the thing. I like talking uh, Scream with you as well. And of course, it's also the third film in the franchise. And this, I remember going to the theaters and not being, I, I didn't really enjoy this one as much as the first two films when I first saw it in the movie theaters. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely the, like, I'll say, I'll preface by saying I love all these movies, but this is definitely the weakest of the five so far. I definitely agree with you. As far as uh, part three goes, I don't know when my reviews are going to be whenever I see part four, but for me as part three, it's actually the weakest, but it's not, it's like, okay, it's good, but it's not the best. And yeah. that's one thing I can say is like, it's not the worst movie out of a franchise with, that has five movies or anything either. So that's yeah. something I really like. It's true. Like I said, I, I enjoy all of the movies. I'll sit down and watch them all, you know, in a marathon. No problem. Uh, but yeah, this one is definitely the weakest. Most definitely. So this movie, of course, came out on February uh, 3rd or 4th of the year. Well, actually, February 4th, 2000 in the United States. And this also made has a budget of 40 million and made one hundred sixty one point eight million dollars which is fantastic for a third film within the franchise itself because it could either fall flat or they're going to be, they would be like, well, you know what, this is supposed to be the third one. So it doesn't really matter if it makes its money budget back, but it made quite a splash back then. Yeah. So, so of course, you know, it always opens up to that one stab scene where basically you wind up seeing either uh, something that's very meta, like we got in the second film, or we get something that is connected in with the characters. This time we actually get Cotton Weary and he's actually on his way home from And of course, we actually realize, too, that Cotton is now a big time celebrity now. He's yeah. a, at a successful talk show called 100% Cotton, and which I think is hilarious. And then he's in stuck in traffic. He gets a phone call, and you're thinking, okay, well, he's on the phone with his girlfriend. Then he, the phone rings. And so he's sucked into this celebrity life to the point where he has the big head now. It's like, oh, so a fan accidentally calls me, knows who I am. And he yeah. tells his girlfriend, please hold for, hey, look, baby, I'm just going to have to call you back in a few minutes. Yeah. And this is another thing I liked was the fact that he was actually complaining for be, for uh, basically the studios wanting him to do a cameo appearance. And he says, no, I'm not going to do a cheap cameo appearance in somebody else's movie. Yeah. And then I started thinking to myself, well, you are doing a cameo for this movie. And then you did a cameo technically in the second film, even though you had a little bit more of a larger part. So yep. therefore you're complaining in the movie. So therefore that's also one of the, another hard tropes is I feel like he actually broke one of the rules by complaining about the certain role that he has. And that's also the reason why he probably died as well. Yeah, and it, and it makes it real. It makes it real meta too, right? Yeah, I mean, granted, the whole movie really kind of is with the with the you know movie set and everything. It's, it's all really kind of meta, but uh, that made it a little extra because yeah, like you said, he's complaining about doing a cameo while the actor that himself is doing a cameo. Yeah, which I thought was was hilarious and also a good way to actually introduce Cotton again. And of course, mm -hmm. during the second movie, all he was complaining about was like. I need to have my interview. I want to, I want to be interviewed by Diane Sawyer. I want Diane to, Sawyer. Yep. <laughs> it was like the biggest thing. He was like, I want my Diane Sawyer, Sawyer interview. And you promised me this Gail. And of course, you know, now he's a big time celebrity. And then he gets that phone call and killer's like, well, uh, you, well, I'm just going to tell you this cotton. You, you have quite a number on you. You have a really nice uh, uh, girlfriend. Cause how do you know I have a girlfriend? Because I'm looking right at her. Yeah. And then that's when it goes high speeding through the traffic yeah. everything and gets there. And of course, I like how they use this trick with the voices now where now it's their yeah. voice, which is very different. Yeah, because it, it really helps to point the finger at multiple different people. And it throws because at one point, the actual killer 
just uses his voice. And but, but the audience doesn't realize that's what's happening. And they just assume, oh, okay, Ghostface is is just using the mod, you know, he's pretending, using you know, whatever the, this modulator thing is, uh, to to mock that voice. And so it throws you away from who it actually is, which is is interesting. Very. And then of course, you know, she's showering and Khan's on his way home. She's getting attacked by the killer. And then finally, Khan gets there. You're thinking, okay, well, maybe Khan actually does show up on time before the killer even gets a chance to kill her. And then, and then he's. She's thinking that maybe Potten's actually taking his screen uh, stab games a little too far. Yeah, I I thought that was really interesting because it it shows that he apparently does that kind of thing a lot, where he messes with his girlfriend and plays these games with her, that to the point where she's getting tired of it. And it's like, really, dude, like. <laughs> I, I understand that's kind of enveloped your whole life for years now, but like, come on, like, I don't know. <laughs> it exactly, makes him because out to be kind of a, a bigger douche than, than he was before. Exactly. Because I understand that he was framed for the murder and stuff like that of Cindy's mother, but you're going to go to the extreme of uh, terrorizing your girlfriend with the uh, thing that you wind up getting framed for, that's pretty jacked up. <laughs> yeah. And I doubt that she enjoys this because she seems to be annoyed by it in the first place. So, like, she's probably expressed that annoyance uh, at it before, and yet he continues to do it. Exactly. And then, you know, she she thinks it's him because the killer's using his voice, and then when he finally gets there... And I like how she's act- she's still alive. We're like, okay, thank God she's still alive. But at the same time, you feel bad for Cotton because of the fact that it's not really him. And therefore, the killer's framing him to make him look like he was the one who was actually attacking her whenever he wasn't. Yeah. Then, of course, Ghostface comes out from behind the door, and then he winds up getting into a tug-of-war match with Cotton. And then he winds up uh, taking a golf club. Khan winds up taking golf club, trying to take a swing at Ghostface. Ghostface goes on ahead, takes the golf club away from him. Also, too, before that happens, you wind up having the girlfriend getting stabbed in the back after Cotton winds up telling her to look behind her, just as the audience would actually imply to look behind her. Yeah. Yeah, he he was yelling at her the way, you know, I'm sure people in the audience were doing the same thing. (laughs) Right. And then so after that winds up happening, he winds up stabbing Cotton and then opens up to Sydney and this is where the whole entire plot comes through where basically we have you know we basically wind up seeing Sydney now she's actually it's been a couple of years since the confrontation between uh Ghostface and her in college she's now working for a 911 but not uh using her real name anymore so that way she can hide from the killer. I thought that was actually a really interesting take of the fact like, okay, well, if this killer comes at me again, I'm just going to go in and hide out in the hills where nobody else can find me and change my name. And so the way I can actually move on with my life. Yeah. So I really thought that was very, very good. Oh yeah. Yeah. She goes completely off the grid, you know, for the most part. Um, yeah. I, I like, uh, there's some stuff that kind of happens with her out there, which uh, we you haven't gotten to yet, which I'll talk about when we get there. But um, it, it makes it makes her character fairly interesting, I think, in this one. So, right, because I've, I I put her in the same category as Lori in a sense, where basically yeah. in the first one she's pretty much a tough badass. Though in the in the first movie, she's not as a she's not like a dazzle in distress or anything like that. But you can no. tell that she's. A little, she's scared of Ghostface. She doesn't quite know what's going on around her and not very self-aware. And then in the second one, she becomes very self-aware of the things around her to the point where she knows how to survive this, but also too, there's new uh, rules and stuff like that within the second movie that sets up for something else. So therefore, she's even having to be more self-aware than what she normally is. Yeah. And then in the third one, it shows really a lot of strength that she has after facing against Ghostface twice. And surviving so that's something i really liked yeah and then of course this also introduced detective mark kincaid he kind of contacts gail weathers to discuss the recent murders prompting her to travel to hollywood where she finds dewey working as an advisor on the set of stab three the third film in the series based on the uh, ghostface murders 
they crank these things out quick, man. Because the second movie that you know it's the first stab, and between the that and this one, they had already pumped out another stab movie. Well, I think of it like this, okay? Like the last two were like back to back with Scream One and Scream Two, yeah. so therefore it's kind of like very meta because it's actually a couple of years later. So a couple of years, you actually have your third movie. So yeah. just like how they would have that third movie. So it actually makes sense of the time jump as to why they actually have three movies now. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Makes sense. At least that's how I'm understanding it. Yeah. Um, but I definitely like how all the actors or anything like, mm-hmm. like that are, are also on the set. He goes, well, this is it. They're, they're going to cancel our show because of the fact that they're blaming violence with movies. And this is, and then we're just like, relax it's okay it's not even connected to us or anything like that this is just one um one murder it doesn't mean that it's going to be connected to us we're going to be fine and next thing you know it they wind up finding out that it's actually linked to sydney which also leads to them being shut down for the production of the film yeah so after that they're out of the job so and then i thought it was kind of ironic to see dewey being someone that would actually provide information yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to this, I thought this I think would be it, Gale that he, would do that. I think it's because he is the most manipulative, m- most able to be manipulated. You know what I mean? Like Gale would either not give up the information that they would want or would require too much in return. Whereas Dewey, he's such a nice guy. He's willing to help out and talk about. It. I think that's I think that's a big part of why. That's true too. Being from a small town, he's a cop, mm-hmm. ex-cop, former cop, who actually was part of these murders. So therefore, he's like, you know what? For a couple of thousand or whatever, I'll go ahead and be an advisor for for you guys. Yeah, and be manipulated into this whole entire thing to where he gets sucked in to the point where he actually for, actually loses himself within this world and forgetting the fact of the things that Sydney actually went through. Yeah. Although he's also gotten stabbed in the in the back and stuff like that too in the second movie and the first first movie. Yeah. But another thing I liked about this was I mentioned this in the second um, movie review, where basically I like how they have a theme song for Dewey and has this kind of western kind of vibe to it. Yeah. This one is more of a slowed down version of the one that we got from Scream 2, where it was basically a it's a slowdown Western kind of feel to it because of the fact that they're describing the hurt that he feels in that lost within himself because of the fact that him and Gil are not together anymore. Yeah. That was one of the things that I disliked that they did in, in this one. It was that they, they split them apart like that because I really liked them. And it's funny because... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but like at the end, you know, they get she he proposes and everything. But I was when I was kind of looking into everything, I found out that David Arquette and Courtney Cox got married a month before they started shooting this movie. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. They they got married June of '99, and this started filming in July. That's that's amazing. I didn't yeah. I didn't know that. I wasn't sure if they got married or this was actually on the verge of them almost splitting up themselves. So I wasn't sure if it was one of the two. I know that they were together or they met on the set of Scream 1 and they were together since then, but I didn't know about that part. Yeah. So I thought that I thought that was really cool especially with with the ending and everything, so. Same. <clears throat> yeah. And then uh you know, and then of course, he winds up calling Gail out on, on her stuff and she goes, "What are you doing over here investigating?" "Oh, I'm here with the detective." "Oh, really?" What about this? And she goes, well, you have a camera on you. What makes you think I have a camera? That's the same purse I bought you. Yeah, I love that. He he knew right away. <laughs> <laughs> but I also like the fact that he chose someone to play him. And he's like this macho kind of guy. Good looking. Nothing like what Dewey actually looks like. Because that's actually how Dewey sees himself as. So yeah. therefore, that's why he picked it's that It's funny person. because yeah. in the... Uh, in the other scream or in the other stab movies it's they it's they say it's david schwimmer who plays his character which which is funny because of the courtney cox the friends whole thing um but i think david schwimmer fits that type way better than this new guy 
so I, yeah, I think that's uh, really funny that he, uh, he went a little different route when he got to, got to say. Definitely. And then you have, let's see, then of course, a uh, ghost, uh, ghost face kills stab three actress, Sarah Darling, causing production of stab to be halted. So that's, that's two murders happening within the, um, in the time frame. And like I said, whenever we first get a cotton at first, they're like, okay, well, it's not any connection to us. So therefore we can still do the production of this movie. And then of course he also, the, the killer also left them the picture of Sydney's mom, which yeah. also links Sydney back into everything. And then you also have another thing that winds up happening where you wind up having Sarah uh, Darling. Yeah. That winds up dying, and then of course that's what's caused them to shut down the set of screen of of stab three. Yeah, uh, there was something I wanted to mention though that happened before <laughs> that that was actually one of my negatives for this. Um, now I love these characters uh, that I'm going to mention, and outside of this movie, love it. But Jane Silent Bob popping up in this movie just did not fit. No, it just it it feels so awkward uh and out of place um the scene by itself is funny and would have fit in like jay and silent bob strike back it would have been hilarious right but it just doesn't fit here and i think it's interesting because this film came out in in 2000 then jay and silent bob came out the next year and jay and silent bob has like scenes that are kind of not not similar but like Wes Craven's in it and they're doing like a scream homage thing in the Jane Silent Bob movie. So I'm, it makes me wonder if there was like some sort of you do this for us, we'll do this for you kind of a thing going on between those two productions for some reason. I don't know. That was also a negative for me as well. I love Jane Silent Bob. I love seeing them pop up, but at the same time, it takes you out of that element of it being a horror movie to where it becomes like a spoof of its own self. Yeah, that was spoof is a perfect word because like there were a few times where I'm like, this feels more like a spoof at times. Um, the Carrie Fisher thing that happens later on is another one where it's like it's not quite as awkward, but it still just doesn't feel like it fits. You know, it, it feels like it would fit better in in like a Kevin Smith movie than it would in this. So, yeah, there's right. a few moments like that. But even with the over the top part where we talk, where you see the Sydney's mom, the nightmare thing that Sydney has. Is it turns in from a slasher movie to like a vampirish kind of movie, and then it goes back to being a slasher movie to the point where you don't know its identity. Yeah, it's very weird. Um, that scene for a long time bothered me until until I allowed myself to just come to terms with the fact that she's got some pretty severe PTSD. That makes more sense, and and that's really all that is. Because if you think if you look at it by itself it doesn't really make sense in the, in the story of, you know, of everything because they don't really cover it that much. They, they dip into it a tiny bit. Um, and there's only one other scene in the movie where it's, I'm not honestly sure if she's hallucinating or not. Uh, and that's when she's on the set and there's the sheet, like the person under the sheet that could right. be ghost face under the sheet. We don't actually know. She could also just be hallucinating that that's a thing. Um, but I yeah. don't know. Yeah. But yeah, we'll talk about that in a few minutes because I have something uh, theorized on that part as to what I think it is too, as yeah. far as that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, then after that winds up happening, we also see the remaining Stab Three cast, along with Dewey and Gil, gather up at the home of Jennifer Jolie. Ghostface murders her bodyguard and uses a, leak, a gas leak to cause the explosion, which kills fellow actor Tom Pernez, uh, uh, who plays uh, Dewey, yeah. who was supposed to play Dewey. But, okay, so I like how Gail is just fed up at Dewey at this point, because and all she cares about is getting the report. She doesn't care about anything else. And they're both running up to this house at the same time going up to the person that's playing Gail's um, self, you know, and I like how just because by the way, Gail, your, your car is still running and just crap. So she goes on ahead, shuts her, um, of course, shuts her, you know, 
car off. And then, uh, then after that, they go inside, and then the bodyguard does does not like Dewey at all. No, or anything because not. he thinks he's trifling on his territory because he's the one who's supposed to be protecting the actress yeah. and not him. So he feels like that he's in violation of her protection. Yeah. But what did you think of the bodyguard and how he was supposed to be there? How he was there trying to protect? I mean, I like Patrick Warburton. You know, I like him as a as an actor and everything. But I I didn't really like this character all that much. I understood his purpose. I understood why he didn't really like Dewey all that much. But I felt like he, for the most part, he was unnecessary. Really, he was really just there for another body. Right to amp the uh, body count up even more when Dewey could have just been there to protect her. It would make more sense because of the yeah. fact that he was a, an ex cop. Yeah, and, he, and like, also none of the gig. other people seem to have a bodyguard. No, everybody but her. Yeah, yeah. And I think it would make more sense because of the fact he's a former ex cop. So, and he is an advisor on the set. But what if he needs like a side gig? That could have been the side gig that he was actually doing. So what it would actually made more sense to him to be a bodyguard for somebody that was on the set. It would it would make more sense why he has his airstream like parked on her, you know, in her yard area or near her house, too. Yeah. I like how Gail even says you live with her on your on her property. Because, well, she likes having me around more than what I can say about you. (laughs) So yeah. the, the little bickering back and forth to me actually works because of oh, the chemistry yeah. that we got with the first two films mm-hmm. and, and seeing that, I think that works with them. Yeah, absolutely. And then after that one's up happening, it tur- it's actually night now. Everybody's reading their scripts and tear- well, one person's tearing their scripts up. Yeah. And then you also <laughs> see the fact that they get a phone call and they get a phone call where basically it's the killer. And so at that point, that's whenever the killer goes on ahead, shuts the power off at, their ho- at the house. But before that, Dewey goes, okay, just don't panic. Don't panic. And then all of a sudden the lights go out and then everybody starts panicking. Yeah. So I like that moment. And then there's also the part with the fax machine. Yeah, I, I, I really like the, 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 the fax machine thing. It's like it dates the movie, but it's, it made it really interesting. But here's my thing. If he's nearby at all, where did he get the fax? Like, how is he faxing? He went to Western Union that was just on the road. <laughs> like, look, I need you to send this one first. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to do it at this time or I'll, I'll call you and I'll let you know when to do it. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and then I could see the Western has, Union going, I will kill you, the gas. Maybe what he has like a portable about? fax machine just like in his car or something. <laughs> Who knows? Right. <laughs> but for that, though, it actually, well, for, it's a smart thing to do. But at the same time, you're wondering how did he manage to get like a fax machine? To, so uh, it kind of falls. There's a couple of times throughout this movie where they really they do things that make you think there's more than one killer. Um, there's a couple, there's an instance where it's almost impossible for it to have only been one, something that happens. Um, when we get to the, to Sydney on the set, I'll, I'll bring that up, but there's, there are times, and this is kind of one of them. Cause it's like, if there was a second killer, it could have just been the other person doing it. You know what I mean? It wouldn't have been that big of a deal when it would make sense, but there's only the one guy. It's so it's right. like, how, how did he, how did he manage that? Because even whenever I saw this in theaters, I'm like, there has to be at least two other killers besides him. Yeah. And then whenever I found out it was only one, I'm like, okay, that was kind of lackluster. because we've always, we always had two killers. Yeah. I, I remember yeah. when I first saw this, I thought there was going to be three killers. Cause like, you know, you got to amp it up. You got to make it different. It's the third movie, three killers. But that, that didn't happen. No. And then, like I said, Tom Perez winds up getting uh, killed with the gasoline because of the fact that he actually takes the lighter because everybody else is using a flashlight to look at the facts, uh, to look at the facts. I would think like, hey, dude, you need you need my flashlight. And no one even thinks about even giving the guy the flashlight to use or anything like that. So he gets the uh, he goes on ahead, gets a lighter. He winds up saying, 
I will spare all, everybody else all but one who has who can smell the gas. And he goes, smell the gas? And then all of a sudden, the house blows up. Gail and all the, the actors and actresses fly over the hill. They all uh, wind up rolling on the ground. Then, of course, you see Ghostface near the van. And then uh, Dewey's... And you're thinking that Gail's going to die. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yeah. And Dewey shoots Ghostface in the chest like three times. Like, he hits he hits him in the chest. Um, and so right there, you're like, well, how is he gone? How did he survive? You know, like, is it cause like later on when they do the Randy thing, you know, they talk about the whole, the killer is supernatural in the third movie and everything like that. And so they lean into that. We obviously learned later on why that is able to happen, but it, uh, it, it cause it makes Dewey doubt himself. You know, he's like, Oh, I, I guess I must've missed, but here's my thing. He's a damn good shot if he's way up on that hill and he's knocking shots into this dude's chest from that far away up on a hill, man. Like, right. You can clearly see that he did hit his mark. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I like the fact, too, that you're also making Dewey second guess himself to the point where he also feels vulnerable again because of the fact that, you know, he's already had his love life's already in shambles. This killer is back again. And now you're not sure if you even miss, even hit your target that you're supposed to, and you're supposed to be to protecting, protecting this other actress yeah. too. And you're kind of second guessing yourself to the point where it's like, damn, what, yeah. what gives in a yeah. sense. And like Gail theoretically then could have died. Cause if he, you know, if, if he isn't able to hit that, hit that target, you know, what could happen, you know? And so I think, yeah, it really messes with him a little bit. Definitely. And then, of course, like we said, Sydney is in solitation as a crisis counselor for an, an abused woman's hotline, fearing that another killer might strike. <clears throat> Having discovered Sydney's location, the killer begins taunting her with the, her phone by using a, a voice changer to sound like her deceased mother, Maureen Prescott, forcing her out of hiding and drawing her to Hollywood. Yeah. OK, so here, here's my thing. Um, how did he get her number? Well, okay. remember, too, the cops did mention the fact that, or Dewey mentioned the fact that the, somebody did raid the police department, and they did, and they did yank get this. Dewey winds winds up taking the uh, file before yeah, it got ransacked. File. Yeah, right. He took the file. The only other thing I could think of, because, um, originally I thought, well, maybe Dewey lent him his phone. Because he, we see him do that with Kincaid, you know, he lends, he just freely lends Kincaid his phone. But he later on says the only people that he's let borrow his phone were uh, Kincaid and, um, whatever, Gail, fake Gail's name is. I can't remember what her name is. Uh, the, the so he doesn't ever mention anybody else. So I'm wondering if he just kind of lifted Dewey's phone and got the number from it. I don't know. That's my theory on it. Because. That would probably be the easiest way, you know. Dewey just kind of leaves his coat or something with his phone in the pocket. He just lifts it out, grabs the number, boom, ready to go. Right, because he obviously didn't have the number at the beginning, because that was no. the whole point with Cotton. Is he wanted? He was trying to find her. Right, he wanted information out on Sydney, and then that was caused him to die in the first place. Yeah, and he didn't get it, and so therefore he ransacks the sheriff's office over at. Over, um, over at the at their town, yeah, and he still didn't get what he wanted. So the only way to do that is to use Dewey as bait, yeah, to be able to do that. And so, at that point, I actually like uh, the fact that he's using Sydney as a way of luring her into Hollywood this way, yeah, and using the, her deceased mother in that kind of way because we know some things about her mother, but not everything about her mother. Mm-hmm. at this point yeah we don't yeah we know very little before this and this movie really just opens it up all the information about marine yeah so after that winds up happening martha mm-hmm. meeks the sister of sydney's friend randy who has murdered while sydney was in college sydney visits sydney and the others to deliver a videotape with randy made before his death which is also called Scary Movie 101, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah. 
And uh, he ends up warning them that the rules of a horror film do not apply to anyone in the third and final film of a horror trilogy, and that any of them, including the main character, Sydney, could die. Sydney is later attacked by Ghostface at a movie set, forcing the police to keep Sydney safe at their station. Yeah. And so, it's funny yeah. because now uh it's no longer a trilogy <laughs> you know at that time that was kind of their plan obviously but that is that you know changed you know uh, you know 10 years later but uh i don't know if you noticed this it was something that I, that i noticed and i thought was really cool sydney is wearing her the greek letters from her boy her college boyfriend which yeah, i thought was I really that. cool i thought that was really a, a nice little um thing to put into the movie you know because they didn't have to do that. They didn't want to. But I thought that was a nice piece of like almost like continuity to, to throw in there. Definitely. That's what I like about this. Is the <laughs> fact that you have continuity with these characters. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, you have the necklace from the, from the uh, sorority house of her boyfriend, deceased mm-hmm. boyfriend, which is canon and with the second film. Then also, too, with I even mentioned this in the second film movie where basically you have the limp that Dewey has. Yeah. From the first film, so you actually have the sciatic nerve being damaged. So I think it's worse now. Yeah, it's, it's after a lot the second, worse. After the second time it got stabbed. <laughs> right. So I like the fact that, you know, they actually added his walk into it the way that he's walking to make it look like he's severely hurt still. Yeah. So I like the fact that they keep a continuity kind of thing within the characters themselves because any other movie you're like, oh, okay, he's fine. He's not limping anymore after being almost on his deathbed twice. So it's most, most horror movies, when you see them using the same cast, they just go on ahead. They don't do any kind of continuity like that, which is something I really like. And then, of yeah. course, like you mentioned, the sorority necklace and stuff like that. I really love that little touch to it. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, she loved this guy, you know, and obviously after all the stuff that happened in part two, she's like, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> you know, so. Exactly. So, yeah. But I, I, I was good to see Randy again and telling. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, that banter of, of him banging one of the girls at the video store. And then he goes and then I like how Dewey's like, you mean that ugly chick? Hey, watch it. <laughs> We were, mm-hmm. It was late one night. We were putting out porno tapes, and that's how we want what wound up happening. Because, yeah. anyways, uh, back to the main point here. Either you have to kill the killer in the face, in the head. He's indestructible, and Blow I definitely like up. how he broke the rules. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that scene. Yeah, like I said, just getting to see Randy again because he was like one of my favorite characters, and I'm so bummed that he died in the second one. So it was really nice that they were able to bring him back in some fashion for the for the third one so yeah same here i just wish they would have done like another videotape or dvd or something of randy again doing the rules for this new one just in case or anything but i know that wasn't gonna happen yeah but but okay so we were talking about that whole entire scene with the dead body and stuff like that because we were talking about sydney going through the movie set and it's identical to her neighborhood which is scary because even it just shows you how much Dewey actually gave them for information. Oh yeah. And how detailed it is. It's detailed to the T as oh, far yeah. as this goes. It looked yeah, like, like being on a set of a Halloween of the Halloween franchise. That's yeah. how detailed it is. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was wild just going into the house and stuff and like her just watching her face as she's kind of looking around inside the house and the, in her own room and all this stuff is really interesting. Like and of course, there's a Creed poster in the background of her wall. But at that time, well, I mean, speaking right. speaking of Creed, like I didn't, we didn't mention this, but at the in the opening scene, they they're playing a Creed song when she gets right. out of the shower. She cranks up "What If." This is I rem- do I remember jamming to that song so many times. It was insane. It was, it was on most of my playlists. It was such a good tune. <laughs> and it has a great guitar riff mm-hmm. as well. That's something I really liked. What and of course Creed was actually popular during that time, mm-hmm. so it made sense to put them in this world and stuff like that to give them more popularity. Yeah. But I just thought it was funny that they actually have Creed playing at the very beginning of this when the when Cotton's girlfriend's getting out of the shower. Then you also have a Creed poster in the background 
of Sydney's room. Yeah. And Sydney's room, it looks identical to the first movie, all except the Creed poster wasn't there. <laughs> but then you also have the echoes in her voice of things that happened when in the first movie was like, well, do you want to settle for a PG? Would you settle for a PG 13 relationship? Yeah. And then it goes into hearing um, Matt Lillard's character talking. And then you hear Billy's voice. I thought it was very good with the PTSD that you mentioned mm-hmm. because it is very fitting to know that, okay, well, she's dealing with some PTSD and things like that. And then, of course, it opens up. With, and, of course, she goes through the rest of the house. And there's a murder scene mm-hmm, in which yeah. they added into that. Yeah. And we never saw that before in the first Scream movie. So it was like some type of background to let mm-hmm. us know as the audience that was actually uh, Marine Prescott's body that was there. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I that's that's what I assumed was that they were. Because this movie is based is not based on any actual mur- like thing that had happened, you know. Whereas um, my assumption would be that Stab Two was probably based on the college stuff, was you know that we saw on Scream Two. Obviously, we didn't see any of that. Uh, but this one, they're just completely making up. So for them to go back in and, and show the audience uh, Marine's death, I think that would make sense. Exactly, and then. Like I also think this too. I don't. I think this is ghost. I don't think it's ghost face inside the body bag. I'm thinking it's a PTSD moment. Okay, yeah, because that's what I, I'm like. Because later on, he does it. Yeah, he 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 does essentially uh, imitate what she's seeing here, like towards the end. So it made it made me wonder. I was like, well, was that him? I was like, but it wouldn't make sense. Why after chasing her around and all this stuff and trying to get to her. Would he stop, put the sheet on in this moment to do that? Like, why wouldn't he just go at her at this point? You know? Especially when there's also cops around and things like that, too. It's It wouldn't make sense for Ghostface to do that because it's too time-consuming, especially if he wants to kill her. Yeah. So he would want to isolate uh, her. Right, right. He would want to isolate yeah, uh, her around everybody in order to do something to her, not do some some silly gag like that. Yeah. So I'm thinking it's just be, with the blood, seeing the room in dis- distortion and stuff like that being distorted, made yeah. it made it that kind of way. The only Where's thing that I, the only thing I could think that would justify why he would do that if it was him is to make her feel more crazy. Because like when she's trying to tell the detectives and Dewey that Ghostface was in there, she also is like, and I saw my mother. Like, so she sounds nuts. And they don't right. really take her seriously because of that. So like, theoretically, I could see that, but I feel like that's just me grasping <laughs> for, <laughs> for an explanation as to why, it, it, whether or not it was him. So. Right, exactly. And... <laughs> You know, there's also this other part too. Remember, whenever one of the actresses was going to go into the office of one of the other actors and to do uh, this this read for the script, yeah. And I liked how they're like, "Well, damn it, another another changes with the screen with the screenplay." And of course, we also know the fact that there was actually leaks on on the sets and stuff like that. Several different people were reading the scripts, yeah. so it's very meta into that situation of what Wes had to do to change the scripts up and stuff from yeah. being leaked online. So I thought that was yeah. very interesting. Oh, yeah. as far as that goes, yeah. But anyways, um, but yeah, then after that winds up happening, we wind up seeing, of course. Uh, we wind up seeing them take Sydney back over to the police station for safety, and then Dewey and Gail and Jennifer and the remaining stab cast, Angelina and Tyson, attend a birthday party for Stab Three, uh, Three's director Roman uh, Bridger, and I, and then also too after Gail discovers Roman's body in the basement. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the confrontation with the director. Yeah. I thought that was oh, really interesting. Real quick, yeah. There was one thing I forgot to mention because I had said I was going to mention it when we got to the to the house on set stuff. Um, he, when she runs into the other house after the whole like get jumping out the window and she runs out, um, he comes out of a closet. Yeah, 
How the hell did he cut, get it in that closet? There's no physical way that he got into that closet. Because <laughs> <laughs> she opens it, and it's not like like how when she's upstairs and she opens the one door, and it's just like a an empty openness. The closet, right. like you can see inside the closet, it's not like that. So, like, how did he get into this closet? It makes you think there's another killer, but exactly. Not. And so it's like, how did he physically get in that closet before she got inside that house? You know, I don't know. <laughs> As if he was planting it the whole time for her to be there that whole time. Yeah. But it does so set up for it to be like a third killer, though. And mm-hmm. that whole entire thing of it being in like open openness and everything feels like a kind of like a Looney Tunes kind of kind of thing that they do mm-hmm. where Sydney runs up the stairs. And then, of course, there's nothing there because it's a set piece. And then she's hanging um, outside a little bit to where she can actually push Ghostface um off and he goes on ahead and lands on the bed and at that point that's when the cops come in and then brings them brings her over to the police station yeah and then at that point though too gail and dewey and them are having a conversation with the director and the director winds up talking about what women had to do in order to get a job get jobs over into Hollywood, which is very reminiscent to Weinstein Company. I literally have that in my notes. I was like, is Milton supposed to be like Harvey Weinstein? Because he totally comes off that way. He definitely yeah. does. He, he's yeah. definitely a sleazeball, especially when he goes, well, these women know what they're expecting. It's nothing unusual, nothing uncommon. Yeah. Because she knew what she was getting whenever she came into that, because it was, it was a way to work women into this Hollywood business that we have. Yeah. And they and she met all these people, and that's how she winded up being who she is. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, he to be honest with you, he does remind me of Harvey Weinstein. And that's and it's interesting that that far back they would stick he that Wes Craven's like, yeah, I'm gonna stick this, I'm gonna stick it to him in this way, you know, because that's that's how he can at that time. Right. So. Don't forget, I'm sure that Wes has seen some stuff in his life. Mm-hmm. To, to he's been around this he's not no stranger to it that he knows this what goes on within Holly in the walls of Hollywood oh, so sure. I like the fact that he actually was true to that and wanted to make send a message to what it's like for women in in this industry to go th- what they go through yeah so I felt like it was a very well played message for um for that yeah so after that we actually get the fact that okay, they have Dale, Dewey, and Jennifer are on their way back to probably go to the police station. They get a phone call from supposedly Sydney, and then of course that's when they wind up saying, uh, when Sydney winds up saying, "Well, look, I'm going to go over to this party, over to Roman uh, Roman's party, and see what I can find out over there. Don't worry about me. I'm I'm with one of the police officers. We're going to be fine." And so. They turn back around yeah. and they get there really fast for the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything that I've heard about traffic in California and, and like around the you know, Hollywood area and stuff, just, I feel like it would not have gotten there that fast. No, even Cotton had a hard time yeah. getting to <laughs> just getting back to his apartment. Right. But <laughs> Officer Dewey. Eight minutes to find, be there yeah. in like 10 minutes. You found a way, man. You found <laughs> right. a way. <laughs> but yeah, then uh, stabs, then Roman Badger, after Gail discovers Roman's body in the basement, in the coffin. Yeah. And I'm I like, thought that okay. was a, yeah. a, I thought that was a brilliant move on his part. And on Wes Craven's part, because it really throws the audience off away from Roman. You know, right? It's like, well, it's not Roman that's the killer, so we can exonate him. Yeah, because he's dead. He's in the coffin, so he's good to go. So therefore, we don't have to worry about him. And it was really smart, just in the movie, for Roman to do that to to put them at a at a false sense. Like, oh, he Roman's dead, so now he can just kind of go off and do whatever he needs to do. Exactly. Yeah. And then, of course, Ghostface attacks the group, seemingly murdering Angelina when she's wanders off alone. And this scene is scary. And don't forget, this is also a mansion. So the first thing that came to my mind was Clue. Oh, yeah. Scene. And stuff yeah. like that. So now it becomes like kind of like a whodunit, but in a horror slasher movie. And it's funny because like they were pushing hard 
trying to m- make the audience think that it was either her and or Kincaid as the killer. Like they did both of them. They pushed real hard to get the audience to believe um, that it was either of them. So I thought that was, yeah, seeing her die. I was like, okay, not her. (laughs) Right. Because it's twice in this movie where they actually think that it's her because number one, she was stealing stuff from the set. Yeah. I love that scene in the bathroom because like we get the homage to the first movie with the boots in the stall. Yeah. I love that. There's a bunch of stuff like that throughout this movie where they call back to the other two, which I love when they do stuff like that in general, but Uh, I did too. But yeah, she picks up her feet in the stall. And then of course you wind up seeing Sydney uh, kick the door open thinking that it's actually Ghostface. She has her pepper spray. And then we wind up seeing the fact that, Oh, this woman is stealing stuff from the set. A cell phone, (laughs) which makes you look like that. You're actually the killer. Yeah. The mask, the phone, like, come on lady. (laughs) Exactly. And then what's even scarier is to see all the ghost face costumes and stuff like that inside this house. Yeah. So it makes it stand out of like, okay, so which one's the real ghost face and which one's just a real costume at this point? So I definitely like that aspect to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, he winds up stabbing her. And then after that winds up happening, you see the other guy who... Uh, gets thrown out the window. Oh, yeah. He so, gets launched out that window. Oh, man. <laughs> After that winds up happening, <laughs> um, we wind up seeing, of course, um, you know, after that winds up happening, we also see the fact that she wanders off alone. So then, of course, Tyson and Jennifer, the killer, then orders Sydney to the mansion to save Gail and Dewey, who are being held hostage. When Sydney arrives, Ghostface lures her inside where Gail and Dewey are bound and gagged. As Sydney is freeing them, Ghostface appears, th- though Sydney gains the upper hand. By using a handgun to fight him off. So what did you think of the fact that whenever you when she first arrives, the killer is telling her at the police station as well, do not bring the police into this. And then he tells her whenever she pulls up to the house, use the scanner. Yeah. And of course, she also got Kincaid's. Yeah, gun. We, we see yeah. her pull the, the little gun out of his desk. And so when when she does the wand. And, you know, obviously she passes over her ankle and she has to pull and she pulls that same gun out. I was like, oh, man, he you know, makes her throw it in the pool. I was like, oh, shit, she lost her gun. But Sydney's smarter than that, man. Had that second gun on, on her ankle like that. I thought that was brilliant. That was. That was a good thing on Sydney. And it goes to show you that she isn't the same person that she once was in the first two movies as well and shows her strength, which I yeah. thought was really good. Absolutely. And then, of course, you know, we wind up seeing this other thing where uh, Sydney is free. And then, of course, Sydney gains the upper hand. And okay, I'm looking through my notes. Sorry. Uh, Sydney flees and hides in a secret screening room where he discovers, where she discovers a ghost face who reveals himself as Roman, having survived being shot by wearing a bulletproof vest. Yeah, and so then that that ties back to the scene uh, outside of Jennifer's, like down the hill from Jennifer's house, uh, where Dewey, we know Dewey shot him several times. And so then it clicks. It's like, okay, that's how how he ended up surviving that because he had just had a vest on that time. He, there was no way around it. Yeah. Exactly. And then also, too, Gail <laughs> also did some investigating. I know that we were going to talk about the Carrie Fisher cameo, though, too, because we wanted to talk about that. Yeah. So there was also another thing, too, where they actually noticed in the background of these pictures about 20 to 30, 40 years ago that it was actually the same studio front that they were using for Stab. Yeah. And then of co- then after that, you know, the only way to get into the archives of the of everything is to actually know somebody within the, that organization. So first, you see Gail give Carrie Fisher $50. Yeah. And then you see the other, per- the actress who plays skills. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, bribing high schoolers. And then she takes off her ring and says, this is worth at least 2K. And then yeah. Ca- I yeah. love, I just love that. They're like, wait a minute. Are you? And she's like, no, I, I get that all the time. Like she's supposed to, she looks like Carrie Fisher and she makes the joke 
Um, I was I was up for Princess Leia, but it went to the it went to the one who slept with George Lucas, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. But it still it doesn't fit in the context of the movie. It's a hilarious scene. It just felt awkward in this to me. I don't know. Just like the it didn't movie. land my laugh. I'm going to tell you this: in the movie theater, it didn't it didn't even make me laugh. Yeah. And then also too, this time it didn't make me laugh either. It just shows goes to show you how awkward it actually is to actually have that kind of meta joke, and it just doesn't yeah. land. Yeah, no, I get that. I get it. Um, yeah. So after that winds up happening with the uh, Sydney shooting him in the chest, but Sydney survives the shot and stabs Roman multiple times, revealing to him that she too was wearing a bulletproof vest. But okay. we also have so her, yeah. before before that. Um, he, he gets her down, right? He gets her on the ground and he shoots her in the chest. Why didn't he just shoot her in the head? She ain't going anywhere. He's standing over her with the gun. And for some reason he decides I'll just shoot her in the chest and hope that this kills her when she, he could have just shot her in the head and been done with it. You know, I wrote in my notes, I was like, just like Thor Roman should have gone for the head. Exactly, because <laughs> just like how Randy said the same thing that you she that killers can only be killed through the head. Mm-hmm. So why and anyone can go at any time because she is considered a legendary character now. Yeah. So that's also another thing. It's like he de- he deserved to die simply for that idiocy. <laughs> exactly. Like, come on, man. But also too, Roman also admits to being Sydney's half brother. Yep. Born to their mother, Maureen, then when she was an actress in Hollywood for four years prior, he had tried reuniting with her and only for her to reject him due to him being the product of rape. And better of the rejection, Roman began stalking her, filming all the men she uh, slept with and showing Billy Loomis's the, uh, the footage of Billy's father with Maureen, which motivated Billy and Stu Marcher to kill her. Thus, uh, setting up off the string of murders in Sydney's hometown and at her college. So it was all because of Roman. Yeah, yeah, I have. And so I want to get your thoughts on this. Okay, so we see Roman kill multiple times, obviously, um, and we see him choking out Sydney at one point. My assumption is that he taught billy specifically how to kill not just like you know showed him like these things these techniques or whatever but like actually how because that's exactly how billy kills one-handed and each and the choking like that we, we talked about that when we were talking about the first movie um that's how you can tell when it's billy doing the killing and so to see that come back with roman i thought that was really interesting i thought that was a great uh thing to, to to put in here to tie it into billy with kind of subtly really i thought it was really interesting i thought it was very interesting it was a good callback to the first one like you mentioned because of the fact that we actually have billy who is actually someone that strangles people versus someone that stabs people so yeah. i thought that was actually a good callback to that yeah you know so yeah. then of course you also have the footage okay so, which then after that, when he discovered how much fame Sydney had attached due to those uh, events, Roman uh, sna- snapped and lured Cindy out of hiding, planning to kill her and frame her for the murder. After Roman kills Stab's producer John Milton, who's actually the douchebag, ball bag guy that we don't like, uh, he, actually, he's, he's one of the few that I honestly was like, I don't care that he died, like, yeah. good, like. There was no sympathy for me for that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and also, too, we wind up seeing the fact that he implies his biological... He also implies that his biological father and one of the mothers was rapists. Sydney furiously uh, denounces him and his motives, provoking an enraged Roman to engage Sydney in a vicious fight, which ends when Roman shoots Sydney in the chest, but Sydney survives, like we said before, and this, of course, is whenever she winds up wearing a bulletproof vest. And as Dewey and Gail arrive, a screaming Roman suddenly resurfaces with a knife. Sydney yells at Dewey to shoot Roman in the head, which Dewey does, finally killing him. But I like how 
they turn around and goes, hey, don't we need to go on ahead and uh, shoot him in the head? And then Dewey's just looking at her like, what? And then all of a sudden, you see Roman just rise up mm-hmm. and just does like a Superman kind of... You, you can tell that he was actually trying to get mm-hmm. up and try to lay one more into her. Mm-hmm. And then, of he course, that's when... Summoned all of his adrenaline for that last. <laughs> <laughs> Dewey just, Dewey like, won't... unloads into his chest and, and, and <laughs> she's just like, shoot him in the head! It's like, then she finally he finally shoots him in the head, and then that's it for Roman. And then after that, sometimes after Sydney's house, sometime after at Sydney's house, Dewey proposes to Gil, who accepts Sydney to returns from a walk and leaves her gate, which were previously shown to be an alarmed open. She enters her home and is invited to join Dewey, Gail, and Kincaid to watch a movie as she goes to join the others. Her front door blows open behind her and she walks away, leaving it as is. As if to say that there is nothing more to be afraid of because because of the fact that the person who started all this is now dead. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, so, as we know, yeah, it's not the case, lady. No. <laughs> just, wait, just wait a decade. <laughs> it's going to start again for you. <laughs> but yeah, all in all, this is actually the weakest one for me still. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I don't... Even after watching it again... Like, I'm still like, yeah, it's still, it's, I, I enjoy it, but it's still the weakest one. Yeah, definitely. It feels disjointed. It doesn't exactly know what it wants to be. One minute is a spoof movie. One minute is a horror movie. One minute is a slasher horror movie. Got a little so paranormal have, stuff going on in it. Right. You know? yeah. So it was a mixture of everything rolled up into this one thing to the point where it's like, okay, what's the identity for this movie? What's yeah. the ident- identification? And, you know, it just doesn't feel like, a cohesive story as opposed to the first two films. But still, I really have to say I did enjoy watching this more than I did the last couple of times that I watched this watched the movie. Yeah. But still ranks in the lower tier for me still. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one one of the things that I wanted to talk a little bit about was just how they were able to pull in moments from the previous two movies. And kind of mirror them, almost like homage them. We talked about the the bathroom stall, you know, scene, which was, you know, a, a big, uh, memorable moment from the first movie. Like the, seeing those boots come down in the stall, and then but seeing it almost in reverse in this, I thought was really interesting. Um, that we got, they redid the the, the soundproof glass scene um, from the set from I think that's the second one. Uh, right. They did that again in this one with Parker Posey's character, which I thought was really cool. Um, you know, Dewey falling down the stairs, uh, the the killer being passed out. Speaking of that, Gail does not know how to check a pulse. I'm telling you, man, no. because she she checks. Uh, I think was it? I think it's Romans when he's in yeah. the when he's quote unquote dead. Uh, she checks his pulse. He's obviously not dead. We we know now, you know, if if this was your first time watching it, you wouldn't have known that at that time. But, you know, we know he's not dead now. And so, like, what was she checking? Like, did she just not know how? I don't know. Uh, I don't think she does. She's a news reporter. (laughs) She's a news reporter. She doesn't really know anything about checking pulses or anything like that. She's just like, okay, I don't feel anything. It's fine. <laughs> uh, He's and, good. Then we, and then we had uh Roman using the the we'll be right back thing, which I thought was a great little uh little callback as well. So yeah, there was a lot of interesting stuff. I think they really tried um to make this one unique and different and stand out. And I but I think that was also its downfall. Like you said, it didn't have an identity. And I think because they tried to do too much with it, I think that was a big big problem with it, you know. So. I think so too. Yeah. So that's going to be it as far as our Scream 3 review. We're going to be doing Scream 4 soon and then following up with Scream 5. And then whenever the new, uh, whenever Scream 6 comes out, we're going to be doing that. We'll talk about scheduling soon, but that's going to be it as far as this review goes. Josh, thank you again for joining me for this review. Yeah, man. It was great. Uh, I look forward to, to coming back on for number four. Most definitely. And guys, you can also follow Josh on his Twitter account and, of course, on his YouTube channel. I have the links posted in the description box below. So go on ahead, check out his channel. He has a fantastic channel. He also has a fantastic uh, Twitter account as well. And, of course, he does a lot of blogging as well, right? 
Yes. Yep. Merkwithmovieblog.com. All right. Get all your information needs and wants over at um, merkwithmovieblog.com. And of course, you guys can go ahead and follow me at Movies Lovers, TV Lovers Tonight on all social media platforms. And also to all major podcasts. This episode will also be on all major podcasts as well. But come back on Wednesday night, 8 o'clock Eastern Time, 9 o'clock Eastern Time for our Last of Us review. And thanks again, Josh. And bye bye. 